source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. This morning's uh, message comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of our Lord. Let us ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we, uh, as we come to your word, by nature would be uh, hardened and distracted. Other things would command our attention. Lord, we wouldn't give it the place it deserves. We would not, in the words of Paul, let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And we pray that you would give us those hearts that by your Holy Spirit we would embrace your word and believe your word, that we would pay careful attention to this word, which is our life, and that, Lord, it would transform us. We thank you that it is a word that searches us, a word that cleanses us, a word that reconstructs us. Oh, Lord, do your work. As you prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and honor. Amen. It's a great question asked many times of what's the future going to hold in terms of this earth. And a lot of uh, paradigms are set forth in terms of the physical earth of what's going to happen and Is it going to wind down eventually billions of years from now? But we have the assurance of knowing how the world is going to end. 
exactly how the world is going to end. This world as we know it and this history as we know it is going to end at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation itself stands on its tiptoes awaiting the coming of Christ, but it doesn't even put it that way. It says it's awaiting the transformation of the sons of God. The creation that is held in a bondage because of our sin. We were the kings and queens of creation. And so when we were broken, that crack went all the way through creation. That creation now will be renewed when the sons of God are openly displayed and transformed as being indeed the children of God in glory, sharing the glory of Christ. There you have the end of the world. The end of the world is not simply the revelation of Christ. It's the revelation and unveiling of his people in glory. And the two are never disassociated in Scripture. That's why from our very uh, responsive reading that we had, it says, you will appear with him in glory. You will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is talking about here. The perishable taking on the imperishable. He, he says it's going to be in a moment. Uh, this word is, you know, the word appendectomy and tonsillectomy have that little tom in there, and that means to cut. And basically this word is atom, atom, from which we get the word atom. Uncuttable. It's the smallest indivisible thing. So instantly. It's not going to be a slow process, you know, that we're transformed, but instantly we're made glorious. And we have these new bodies that are described earlier in this chapter, bodies of power and glory, bodies that uh, are fully owned by the Spirit, as we talked about last week, as, as a piece of marble that now has become a glorious statue. And so he takes us and fully owns us and expresses his glory in our lives. And this, of course, primarily includes the fact that we will be made in character like God. I often wonder, what would the joy be of loving everyone perfectly and being perfectly loved? To enjoy every person without limit and to be enjoyed without limit. To bring delight to every person that I meet and every person brings delight to me. And every person in their unique gifts and abilities and unique expression that God has given each of us as little individual snowflakes, that gray and glorious rainbow of, of enjoyment that will be in the fellowship of eternity. It will be a glorious, precious community because we're made perfect. And the perishable then will put on the imperishable. But I want to focus on verse 58 this week. Uh, and I think it's good that we talk about resurrection, particularly for more than one Sunday, just for this reason, that every day is a resurrection day for us, right? Every Sunday is 
historically the Lord's Day when we come together to express our thankfulness and our uh, praise of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. So we never live apart from the resurrection. And remember that Christmas itself would have no meaning whatsoever apart from the resurrection. No meaning whatsoever. The fact that God took flesh and was a baby means nothing unless he grew and lived for uh, us and died for us and was raised for us. So resurrection colors every aspect of God's work on our behalf. And it's the culmination and final uh, accomplishment of all that he intends for us. Now, in verse 58, he draws a conclusion. Therefore, having spoken this whole chapter about the resurrection, verses 1 through 57, as we know them, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, this divides really into two aspects, faith and work. The the, the mention of being steadfast and immovable, most every commentator believes that Paul is talking here about faith, being steadfast and immovable in believing particularly the truth of the resurrection, which has been his point this whole chapter, that we must believe in the resurrection. It's interesting in Romans chapter 10 as Paul sets forth what salvation is, he focuses on the resurrection itself. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you might even ask at that point, wait a minute, what about the cross? Don't I have to believe in the death of Christ and what he did for me on the cross? Is it just the resurrection? It raises an interesting question, which we're going to get to. But the resurrection is critical and essential, and that we believe in the resurrection. And this kind of language of being steadfast and immovable is used in Colossians 1, verse 23, where he says, If you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, same word, not shifting, it's the verb form of immovable. So he uses almost the same language, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So this is language of believing, of trusting. And I want to point out three things that we must believe about the resurrection and and hold to closely. The first is this, the precious forgiveness of the resurrection. Then we're going to look at the present life of the resurrection. And then we're going to look at the expectant hope of the resurrection. Now, this is the faith part. And you're thinking, oh, no, two, three-part sermons. This is going to be long. Um, But this is just the first part about faith. Okay, what do we believe? What must we be steadfast and immovable in our faith in regard to the resurrection? First, the precious forgiveness of the resurrection. Notice again, we pointed this out last week, but in verse 3, 
I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now there he points out that he died for our sins. And this expresses the truth we all know, that Jesus stood in our place as our substitute and bore the punishment for our sins so that trusting in him, we might not be condemned. And as Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But then later in verse 17 As he's dealing with those who say there is no resurrection from the dead, and he says if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And here's the conclusion in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And notice... He he doesn't refer here to the death of Christ, but he refers specifically to the resurrection. If Christ isn't raised, you aren't forgiven. You are in your sins. You are under condemnation. You are under God's judgment if there's no resurrection. See how intricately the two are wedded together. And that is because the cross is verified or vindicated or it gets its meaning from the resurrection. You might ask this question, in the book of Acts, why is the cross hardly ever explained in the, in the early church? And you, you read the first sermon that Peter preaches, he has no explanation of the cross, the meaning of the death of Christ. You look to the second sermon. You look to Paul's sermons. There's no description of the meaning of the death of Christ. But all the the focus is on resurrection. They'll say, you crucified him, but God raised him. So how they described it to the Jews. Or as he's preaching in Acts 13, the people, the, the Jews crucified it, but God raised him. And yet, in Acts 2 and 3 and 13, as they're proclaiming the resurrection, they then call people to the forgiveness of sins. Think, hmm, you don't explain the cross, the death of Christ, you proclaim resurrection, and then you call people to forgiveness of sins. Must be that the resurrection carries with it the full meaning of what happened on the cross. The resurrection declares that this death of Christ was for others. This resurrection declares that when Christ died on the cross, he accomplished something for his people and he was raised because he fully accomplished that. It's odd, too, that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2, I knew nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. You think, Wait a minute. Here's one place it seems like all you talks about the resurrection and another place you say, all I knew is Christ, not him resurrected, but Christ and him crucified. You see, he's just looking at the same thing from two sides of the coin. Coin. <laughs> What's a coin? Um, 
The resurrection proclaims that Christ has won forgiveness. The resurrection proclaims victory over death because it's victory over sin. That's why in Paul's mind toward the end of this passage, he brings in something that we always think is weird when we read this passage at funerals, as we talked about last week. Suddenly in verse 56, he talks about the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Why would he bring that in at this point? Why, when he's talking about resurrection, did he suddenly breaks away and talks about sin? Because when he talks about victory over death through the resurrection, it means that the resurrection must have something to do with dealing with our sin. It had to deal with our sin. And it dealt with our sin because it proclaims to us there is no condemnation for those who trust in Christ because there's no condemnation for Christ anymore. He has been set free. He's resurrected. And if you go and hang with Christ and you join yourself to Christ and you cling to Christ, then you participate in the fact that you are no longer condemned either because you're with Jesus and he is no longer condemned. That's the resurrection. It has the whole package in it, you see. It has the meaning of the cross. And apart from that, the cross is simply the death, supposedly, of a good man who meant well, but in the end, he died. And that's what Albert Schweitzer thought. He died a frustrated man, having lost what he tried to do. But the resurrection declares otherwise. He has suffered and borne the punishment for sin and now been fully released forever. All who run to him enjoy the same freedom from the uh, the punishment of sin. And so the resurrection is your promise of the effectiveness of the cross. Will you be forgiven of your sins? He's been resurrected. (laughs) If you, if you, cling to Christ, you participate in his freedom, in his vindication. And so the precious forgiveness of the resurrection, you must be steadfast, immovable, always believing that you're forgiven in Christ because of the resurrection. But you must also believe in the present life of the resurrection. That you are part of the new creation, the new humanity, that you have a new self. You are his workmanship. Christ is in you. The spirit has made you his dwelling place. We enter the new life of the resurrection the minute we trust in Jesus Christ. As Paul brings this out in Romans 6, he talks about Christ being raised from the dead so that we too might walk in newness of life. And he's talking about the here and now. So in some way, this new life of Christ's resurrection comes to us and changes us so that we enter into the life of that resurrection. So the final resurrected life has an application. We participate now in it and begin to enjoy the victory over sin in our own lives. That is a glorious thing. And it is a sure thing. He says our old self was crucified so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin and we've been set free from sin. Now we live with him 
He's been raised from the dead so that we can live a new life. And he says here, therefore, you not only consider yourself dead to sin, but now you are alive to God. That's who you are. You've been redefined by the resurrection. You're not owned by Satan. You're not owned by sin. You're owned by God. You've died to a life. You are alive to all the power and grace and influence of the God of all creation. And that's why Paul can say, therefore, in in Romans 6, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't allow it. Because you are dead to that. You have a new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Present your, the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. And he ends with this glorious call. Sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under law anymore. You're under grace. And that has a kind of echo of this statement that the power of sin is the law. The law shows us our sin and it condemns us for our sin. And that's the power of sin because the law comes in and it's beauty and glory and just magnifies how far from love we are in our lives. And so it burdens us with more and more of our weakness and our failure That's the power of sin. It's the law. But he breaks that. He is condemned on our behalf. The law, in a sense, punishes him. The wrath of God is poured out upon him. And now we are set free from the law. The law can never condemn us again. And so Paul here says, sin will not have dominion over you. And you see, sin gets dominion over you because of guilt and because of self-effort and independence from God. But when grace comes into our lives, we helplessly trust in his mercy and forgiveness. And it's then that we're changed. And the dominion of sin is broken in our lives because we have a new master that's won our hearts. We love him. We love him because he's forgiven us and he's embraced us. And there's where the dominion of sin breaks. The resurrection life takes hold of us and we live wholly different lives by his grace. Sin will not have dominion over you because you've been joined to Christ in resurrection. And so the precious forgiveness that's in the resurrection, the present life that's in the resurrection. And of course, the thing he focuses so much on in this passage, the expectant hope of the resurrection. Do you know in the, in the resurrection is the hope of all fulfillment in our lives, all satisfaction of every part of our lives, all healing of every aspect of our lives, physical and mental and psychological and relational. It's full restoration inside and out and person to person, complete reconstruction and renewal. It's wholeness, shalom, it's joy and peace and comfort, perfect love to God and perfect love to one another. Everything is had in resurrection. So, a perfect heart, perfect relationships, and of course, perfection of our bodies so that there is no physical suffering or lack. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever is lacking in your life is turned into an overflowing fountain in that day. 
as they point out in this uh, terminology of going from incorruptible, uh, from corruptible to incorruptible, it's the idea of slowly rotting and deconstructing and falling apart to that which is flourishing and abounding. You see, it's not just that he stops the the breakdown, but it's now constant, fresh, ever renewing grace in our lives, and so. A flood of fulfillment and satisfaction will completely wash away all misery, all loneliness and loss and disappointment. You will never look back and say, you know, I lived my whole life, but I missed so-and-so. Or somebody had this or that kind of relationship or this kind of experience, and I never did. I had such suffering in this or that relationship. Those won't be your words anymore. Your life will be completely fulfilled in every aspect. The resurrection is the only hope for any human being. And here's the great thing. If you fix your dreams on the resurrection, all your dreams will come true. All your dreams will come true. And if you fix your dreams on the resurrection, you'll be able to endure and manifest God's love no matter what earthly dreams are shattered. You'll be able still in the midst of it because of your hope fixed upon the resurrection, you'll still be able to manifest the love of God in your life. And that is a glorious thing. That's your great comfort. That's your great happiness on earth is to continually have the capacity to love as Christ has loved us. Even when earthly dreams are shattered, your real dream is intact, and it will come true. It will come true. We just uh, flew uh, this past week, and I I didn't have the earphones on, but I saw going and coming... uh, what I found out was Friday Night Lights, which I've never seen it. Uh, and I'm not recommending it or anything like that. But, um, And one, one scene that I saw both times as I looked up from my reading was uh, everybody in the stands during the football game. And we all know what that is. Anybody? What? Fourth quarter. Well, it's not just to say, hey, did you know it was the fourth quarter? You know? <laughs> Oh, yeah, thanks. I didn't know what quarter it was, right? No, that's not the point, is it? You hold the fourth quarter because it's like we own the fourth quarter. This is when it happens is the fourth quarter. If we're behind, it's still the fourth quarter. We own the fourth quarter. It's going to happen in the fourth quarter. And that's kind of what the resurrection is, isn't it? It's God over the whole earth (laughs) holding up four big fingers saying to us, it's fourth quarter. I own the fourth quarter. I own every aspect of this game from beginning to end. It is my field. You're my people. And I'm going to bring about my victory. That's why Paul can sit here and mock death. He does. It's like he's dancing a little jig on death's grave. Right? Saying, death, can't touch me. Can't touch this anymore. You can't do anything to me. You can't do anything to God's people. Your sting and your pain and your oppression is gone.
because Jesus has taken it away. Why? Because he died for sins and he's resurrected to declare sins are gone for anybody who trusts in me. And there is present life and a future hope for you. And that's why he says, concerning the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, believing in the resurrection, the forgiveness of the resurrection, the present life of the resurrection, the expectant hope of the resurrection. Then, there's the second part of the sermon. Don't worry. <laughs> hanging in here. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Obviously, there is a connection. If you are believing in his resurrection, then you will be abounding in his work. If you are believing in his resurrection, you will be abounding in his work. And that is what we will deal with next week. Okay? I want to ask you, though, How does the resurrection affect your daily life? How does it? Have you thought about the resurrection this week? I mean, really, at all. Has it ever entered your mind that Jesus is coming, that I'm going to be raised, that I'm going to have the fulfillment of every part of my life in that day? That whatever physical things I'm enduring, whatever relational things, whatever personal struggles, whatever devastations in my life, I'll be fully restored in that day. Here's the thing that it does. And if you will turn with me into the bulletin, easy place to find 1 John 3. I'm going to repeat this part starting with see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And you read the bold, okay? And we're going to read this to the end again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Read this last one again with me. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, your purity... And your constant transformation depends upon your hope. You see that connection? Everyone who thus hopes in him, that's an active, present, conscious hope that changes the way you deal with your wife or your husband or your children. It changes the way you deal with your neighbor. It changes the way you either care about or don't care about the afflicted or the lost in India or China. It purifies you. It purifies you because it sets you free from worrying about yourself and entrusting yourself to him and hurling yourself into the acts of love that God calls you to every day. Because why? He's going to take care of everything in the end. 
I'm so safe with him and I'll have everything in him. I really have nothing in that sense to worry about. And it is the people that have that kind of present hope that purify themselves. It is those who are steadfast and immovable in their hope that then have an overflowing, abounding in the work of the Lord, which we'll get to next week. Let us pray. Lord, again, as we confessed earlier, so often we do not have our hope set upon Christ. We do not have our lives focused, as Peter says, that we should completely focus on that day, that we should fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us in Christ Jesus. And then after saying that, to fix our hope completely upon the coming of Christ and that grace, then he says, don't be conformed to this world. Be holy as God is holy. Even there, Lord, you declare that as we fix our hope, it becomes the means of holiness and purity for us. Lord, may we be forward-thinking people. May we be people who are daily really excited about the coming of Christ, moved emotionally about the resurrection, that we cry with joy as Paul obviously is crying with joy, that we exult in the victory that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are steadfast and immovable, always believing those things and therefore always abounding in His work. Oh Lord, we pray for those who perhaps are with us who've never trusted in Christ, never put their lives in, in the hands of Jesus Christ, never trusted this resurrected one that He would give them, win for them forgiveness of sins and a complete acceptance with God now and forever, immediately, and that his life would take hold of them and they would enter from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Oh, Lord, we pray for any who have never trusted Christ. Maybe it's an 8-year-old or maybe it's a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. Call them to yourself even now, Lord, that they may trust in the forgiveness of Jesus Know the power of his life and have this glorious hope. For Paul says, I want you to not to ever grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope. And we thank you that you've given us that hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is for your glory that we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Thank you.
blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of thy 